Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to DubLab during our 2019 membership drive. If DubLab has helped you in making your days and nights more magical, please consider supporting our inclusive and passion-fueled organization by becoming a member today. For more information, please head over to dublab.com slash support. Hello and welcome to In Conversation, a Dublab podcast where each week we will bring you interviews from the Dublab radio archives. It's Carl Stone bringing you another in a series of composer-to-composer talks. These are radio discussions with composers in the 80s and 90s, originally broadcast on the air in Southern California on my weekly series, Imaginary Landscape, which was heard on KPFK in Los Angeles and throughout Southern California. So this series features conversations with people like Terry Riley, Harold Budd, Steve Reich, Morton Sabotnik, Alvin Curran, Toru Takamitsu, and many others. These rebroadcasts are brought to you through the courtesy and with the wonderful cooperation of DubLab and DubLab.com. So on this program today, we're going to listen to a two-hour conversation with British composer, producer, visual artist, and self-described non-musician. That's Brian Peter Georges Saint-Jean-Lebaptiste de la Salle Eno, known to us more commonly as Brian Eno. The talk was originally held at the Japan America Theater in downtown Los Angeles on August 19th, 1988. And it was in front of a live audience. And uh, what we'll hear is first my short introduction to the audience attending. And then the program after that, for almost two hours, a wonderful conversation with Brian Eno. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Carl Stone. And uh, it was really just a few days ago that Deirdre O'Donohue from KCRW gave me a call and asked me if I'd be willing to participate in this project with Brian Eno in discussion with him and and also with you. And even though my plate was pretty full, I unhesitatingly said yes, because Brian Eno has been a figure who's been enormously interesting and compelling for me. My roots are in contemporary music. I'm a composer, and originally, uh, played rock music when I was young. And so Brian Eno's ability to take the techniques of contemporary and experimental music and implement them into the pop and the song form have been uh, things that have been very interesting for me. I first saw Brian Eno in 1979 give a lecture in New York City, and that's something that I take back to this day as being 
one of the great theoretical experiences that I had in the late 70s. Um, Frank Zappa once said that rock criticism is people who can't write talking to people who can't speak for people who can't read. <laughs> Brian Eno, composer and theoretician, I assure you, can do all three very well. I ask you to please help me welcome Brian Eno. Can you hear me? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I didn't see a microphone. I wondered how you could. Oh, is it this one? Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> the mysticism of technology. Yeah. yeah. I hope you've all consented to be videoed tonight. <laughs> Those who haven't can leave now. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, uh, I'd like to maybe start off by just going back a little bit. You know, uh, I think throughout the course of the evening, we'll talk about your your present projects and uh, put them in the context of your work in the last 10 years or so. But I wonder if, to begin, we could talk a little bit about your roots, what kind of music and other art and cultural experiences were um, resonant for you when you were growing up. Quite a lot of things, but uh, probably the strongest impressions were Duop and Ray Conniff, uh -huh. those two things. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the effect of them is quite clear in my work, I mm -hmm. think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, music for airports is, is an update of Ray Conniff, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Only vocalese, or were there any instrumental music that you encountered? Uh... Actually, the very first record I ever bought myself was Unsquare Dance by Dave Brubeck. Ah, really? Though I, I had other records before that, but they were my sister's, which I stole from her. Mm -hmm. Did you listen to radio? Not in England. We didn't have very good radio then. Mm -hmm. We used to have one uh, show on Saturday mornings called Uncle Max Request Hour, <laughs> which, was the, which was the two hours a week where you could hear pop music. Mm -hmm. But... Where we lived, I, I lived in a little town, but it had two big American air bases beside it. And so the town had 5,000 inhabitants, but there were 15,000 people on the air base. Mm -hmm. So all the little cafes in the town had jukeboxes with R&B songs on, really. So really, I, I listened to jukeboxes more than the radio. The radio all had Cliff Richards on. Uh. I don't know if any of you have the misfortune of ever having <laughs> heard much of him, but Cliff Richards used to do covers of American R&B songs. Right. Um, sanitized taking, for your protection. Yeah, that's right. Really sanitized. Taking out everything that was possibly of interest in the original <laughs> material. <laughs> so this was when? When you were about seven years old or so, or older? Yeah, the first... Actually, I know the first song that really made an impression on me was um, Get a Job by The Silhouettes. Because when, the first time I heard that, I, I decided that that was great music and I would never get a job. <laughs> and I never did. I've, I've never really had a job. <laughs> Later on, did you perform at all as a youth, teenager, playing any instruments? 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> the first group I was in was four people. We, we were actually members of a football team. Soccer, not, not your soccer right. type of football. Um, and four of us had a sort of singing group. And we didn't have any instruments, but the drummer played on a chair. Uh-huh. He, had, he could afford two drumsticks, <laughs> no drums, the, the set. he played on a chair, and we sang a cappella, mm-hmm. and I sang falsetto and bass. Simultaneously. <laughs> now, I could switch between them, you see. Uh-huh. I was at that awkward age. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I couldn't sing anything decent in the middle, anyway. I see. <laughs> So then later as, you know, your hormones progressed, did you find yourself in the baritone? Actually, my hormones never really progressed. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why you no longer sing? (laughs) Yeah, it's been downhill all the way. (laughs) My range has got narrower and narrower. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What was the name? Did the group have a name? I don't think we did. Mm -hmm. We only ever played twice. I see. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that was both in the same place. That was at the Melton Youth Club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't a big success, really, that band. Got bad reviews? <laughs> we didn't... There, fortunately, at that time, there weren't such a thing as pop critics. Mm-hmm. That, was when, that was when rock music was really alive, before mm-hmm. anyone had learnt that you could criticise it. You know? right. <laughs> or that it had to be one way rather than another way. Sorry, yeah. are you a critic? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> Not at all. We may have some in the audience, but so uh, then. I haven't consented to be criticized. (laughs) (laughs) And there go the critics now. So, as I understand, you went to art school. Did did you have any formal training in music at at or before that time? No. Well. I did in a funny way, but not in, not in the usual sense that one thinks of training in music. I didn't learn to play an instrument or mm-hmm. study how notation works or anything like that. But at that time in the 60s in England, there was a big convergence of interests between painters and um, people doing theatre and musicians, composers, performers. And at that time it was called... Conceptual art, I think, was the name that it had then. Or process art, perhaps. I can't remember which came first. Um, So I was at a very interesting art school that took as its brief that it should also employ, apart from painters and sculptors, it should also employ composers and cyberneticians and other people Mm -hmm. like that. And as a result, I did have contact with a lot of the, some of the most interesting composers around at the time, like Morton Feldman and Christian Wolff, mm-hmm. Cornelius Cardew. Right. And they would visit the college, or I became head of the students' union, so I could get them to visit the college, uh-huh. squandering the funds of the union instead of having dances and things. <laughs> and they came and they, they spoke about their music. And they mm-hmm. did performances, and they involved us in performances mm-hmm. as well. Were you, were you involved in the Scratch Orchestra? Cornelius Cardew had organized the, the Scratch Orchestra in the 60s. I wonder if you participated in that. I did. I, I didn't participate for very long because that was in London and I wasn't. I was in Winchester, uh-huh. which 
to you would be just on the other side of town, but in England is a very long way away. <laughs> it was all of 60 miles away from mm -hmm. the Scratch Orchestra. So I, I did have a, something to do with the Scratch Orchestra. Um, in fact, I, I sang on... In fact, my first recording was with the Scratch Orchestra. It was the uh, Cornelius, the Cardio piece called The Great Learning, which was um, released on... Deutsche Grammophon, I That's think, right. years ago. Um, so that was the first thing I ever professionally sang on. Yes. Actually, well, we weren't paid for it. Cardew also did, uh, well, a number of works which were notable because the scores were entirely graphic. Mm -hmm. it, of course, it's not a form that he invented, but his piece, Treaties, I think, stands as a landmark in that particular form. Were you aware of that particular aspect of his endeavor? And yes, well, what I was more aware of was the, the particular piece called The Great Learning, mm -hmm. and that particular paragraph, paragraph seven, it's a piece that's in seven sections. Um, and paragraph seven really intrigued me because the instructions for the music are extremely simple. There are only three instructions, and none of them have anything to do with musical notation in the ordinary sense. The first one says, choose any note freely and hold it for the length of a breath. The second one says, on choosing your next note, choose one that you can hear around you. Mm -hmm. And the third instruction says, um, if you can't hear a note, choose one randomly. Those are the only three instructions in the piece. And there's a text that you sing. Now, you would think that given such a loose structure that you would end up with a very loose piece that every time you heard it, it would sound completely different. It doesn't. Every time you hear it, it's definitely identifiable as that piece of music. Mm -hmm. And I was very interested how it could happen that a piece that was so loosely notated could produce something with such a strong identity every time it was performed. I, I participated in maybe eight or nine performances of that piece, mm -hmm. and they, they all had the same quality to them. as as similar as one performance of Beethoven's Fifth might have to another. And this was rather a novelty in um, unscored music, I think. Yes. Because most of the unscored music really sounded totally different every time. The, the pieces had no clear identity, I felt. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I became fascinated by that piece, and I wanted to find out why it worked. And... Well, I won't, I don't think I can summarize my conclusions very easily, but I wrote, I wrote an essay about that, which was in a book by Gregory Batcock. What was that book called? Um, Breaking the Sound Barrier. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. And that, that's an essay that I still think is interesting because it really, it does talk about music in rather a different way, I think, as a functional mechanism, as a as a system, a social system in mm -hmm. which things, things happen. And that, of course, that principle was very important to Cardew himself. Well, until he abandoned it. I mean, Cardew, <laughs> Cardew in the um, early 70s became a Maoist. But he was always convinced of the social importance of music and music as a, as a mechanism for social change. Yes, and quite rightly, <laughs> he was. What happened at the end was that he... Well, I had a long argument with him once. In fact, I had been asked to interview him. Mm -hmm. I'm a terrible interviewer because I can't sit back and just let someone talk, you see. <laughs> and 
he, I, was interviewing, I was interviewing him and Frederick Shevsky. Mm -hmm. who, who also, in fact, was a communist and That's believed right. similarly. And what I, was, what I was saying to Cardio, I had just finished this essay about the great learning, and, and I was convinced that this piece of music really represented a new idea in music and a new way for people to think about music. And I was very impressed by it. And when I met Cardew, he was just at the point of totally disowning all that work. Mm -hmm. And he'd just written his music, which was <laughs> his uh, essay, which was very well titled oh, yeah. Wiggly Lines and Wobbly Music, <laughs> <laughs> which was a, a criticism of graphic notation <laughs> and, a, and a brilliant criticism, in fact. So we had this conversation. I was, I was all queued up to say, in fact, I did say, I think this is really one of the most important pieces of music of this century, in fact. And he said, it's elitist rubbish, <laughs> or, or something to that effect. So we had this strange argument where I was trying to convince him of the value of his own work. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a very successful interview, really. It's also why you'll never make it as a critic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're supposed to do the opposite. Yeah, right. <laughs> so when then... Did things progress to the point that you actually... Did you ever decide deterministically to have a career, say, in pop music or in music at all? No, I never decided that. And I still haven't, really. <laughs> um, all, what happened was very peculiar because what I was doing at art college was a funny mixture of performance and painting and music. Mm -hmm. It was really a um, rather a homemade brew, you know. And I had um, I invented this system, which I subsequently found out lots of other people had also invented, mm -hmm. which was the long delay echo system. Mm -hmm. And this is a way of really turning anything into a fugue. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's a very very simple method of it appears, of creating music. It's, Steve Reich says it's like a drug, and it is, really. <laughs> um, it's, it's sort of too easy in some ways. Um, but I, I would go around performing that at various other art colleges and places like that. And I didn't particularly... Th I, don't, I still don't think of myself particularly as a musician. Um, I just thought I worked with sound, which mm -hmm. is not, not quite the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I was on a tube train once I was just about to get off and Andy Mackay came up to me I'd met him years before in one of these performances and he said do you know how to work a tape recorder? <laughs> I said yeah I do I've got two of them actually <laughs> and he said well we've got this band and would you come along and record it for us and he had a synthesizer as well. This was in the, in the halcyon early days of synthesizers when nothing stayed in tune, so nobody ever tried to make music with them. Right. The, the great days. Yeah. <laughs> when synthesizers were really just sort of Pandora's boxes mm. of weird noises. And Furthermore, you could never be assured that you could recreate the, the, the weird noise that you had yesterday, today. You never could, actually. Yeah. No, because every, every single atmospheric variable, like humidity, temperature, <laughs> um, whether Parliament was sitting that day or not, they, they, 
they, they all seem to affect the synthesizing. <laughs> Even so, here in the States, I might add. Oh, yeah, sorry, Senate. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, so anyway, he had the synthesizer as well, but he wanted to play saxophone. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't, um, he couldn't do both things at once. So they said, do you mind looking after this thing too while you're doing the tape recording? <laughs> <laughs> and so that's really how I started. And I must say, for a long time, it had a, an air of... Um, well, actually, for all the time I was in Roxy, I thought, this is funny, I wonder what I'm doing here. <laughs> Did you ever find out? <laughs> no, but I know, I can tell you exactly when I decided to stop. Mm. I, um, I was playing on, uh, I, don't, I forget where it was, Derby or somewhere like that, some... Cow town. Well, we don't have cows, but <laughs> some little town in England. And um, I was standing there singing like this, and I realised that I was thinking about my laundry. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I was thinking, God, I didn't put my laundry into the hotel. <laughs> and and I th I thought then this is not involving me properly this <laughs> you, you knew it was time to bag it. Yeah, I thought, I, I thought I'd like to do something that occupied my mind at least sufficiently to keep laundry out of it. <laughs> so then I stopped right. pretty much about then. Mm -hmm. And I've never done much laundry since. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of music affects you now? What is the music, you know, aside from your own, obviously, um, what music resonates for you? What do you listen to? I listen to your great indigenous music, which is gospel. Mm -hmm. that's, that's mostly what I listen to, if I'm listening for fun, you know. Um, I have quite a big gospel collection, and I'm, I'm always making up tapes of the same songs in different orders. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> And do you use chance operations or your oblique strategy to determine the order? Well, it's like a chart, you know, because uh -huh. I use these tapes actually when I'm working quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And I know I have to get in the mood in the right way first. So I have to have my hit of the week has to come after like six numbers or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I have to build up to that. And I get really excited by the time that one comes on. <laughs> <laughs> so I listen to... Gospel. What else do I listen to? Nothing, really. Is that right? I, well, I can't think of anything. I mean... Do you listen to your own music, uh, you know, for pleasure in the car or while you're working on another project? Yeah, I do sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, I Actually, I listen to the music, of, yeah, myself and the people I work with or associate with. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't think I'd better mention that because it would sound like I was promoting them or something. <laughs> But I do, I really do like that kind of music. <laughs> I understand you were recently in the Soviet Union, and maybe you could speak a little bit about that experience. And isn't it true that you came back from that with a particular affinity for uh, the music of Armenia? Well, what happened was that, yes, this is something I've been listening to a lot. 
um, we were round at a friend's house and he put a record on, quite a scratchy record. And the first track was so tragic and beautiful. It was a single, it's an instrument called a duduk, and it's a solo instrument. It sounds a little bit like a, a very sensuous oboe or something like that. A deep, it's rather like an octave below an oboe, but very sensuous but reedy. Mm -hmm. And this track was so beautiful and tragic and wonderful. And it's about six minutes long, and I thought they're bound to put some kind of dance or jig on for the next track. Mm -hmm. But the next track was just as miserable as the first. <laughs> and, and the whole album was uniformly tragic. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was wonderful, you know. It takes a lot of courage to do that, because usually, they, on, particularly on ethnological albums, they sort of stick in a few up-tempo ones so you won't get bored. Mm -hmm at which I'm immediately bored, you know. Um, so this record just went on in this really melancholic, uh, depressing way for 30 or 40 minutes. And Was it all duduk or was there...? It's just this one instrument, yeah. Mm -hmm. one Un unaccompanied? Playing. Unaccompanied, yeah. Oh, really? It's, it's really... really... <laughs> it, it must be just profoundly austere. Yes, it, it is, but it's so, it, it's so sensual and rich. Mm the sound itself, that you never think, God, I'm only listening to one instrument here. It's, it's really one of the most captivating records. So we thought we must release this record in, in the West. <laughs> so we bought the rights of that record from the Soviet publishing company, whose name I can't pronounce, it's so long. And they were very, very happy to, they were extremely cooperative and said, we're really pleased that you want to release it and so on. and So that will be coming out in the next few months, I hope. Any chance for a reciprocal arrangement where they might be releasing some of your music or the other Opal? Well, we didn't group? actually talk about that. I suppose we should have done, really. <laughs> well, perhaps that's the next step. Yeah. When would that be coming out? That sounds... I think that's, um, I don't know, two months or something really? like that. Two or three months. At first, they couldn't even locate the tape. Oh. It took them a long time to find it. Mm -hmm. um, I guess it's, a, it's been out for a while in the Soviet Union, that mm -hmm. record. Mm -hmm. Is but, it a particular artist who you could name? Or? Yeah, Jivan Gasparian, his name is. I don't know whether he's... I really know nothing about him. Um, the record cover appears to claim that he's very well known in Armenia. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> what else are they going to say? Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe we should, you know, pack him up, send him out on tour. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I love Los Angeles. <laughs> we could probably get a nice sort of backup band for it. <laughs> uh, in fact, you lived in Los Angeles for a while. A very Extremely short while. short while, yes. yes. I lived here for about six weeks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It, it was the longest year of my life. <laughs> um, no, I lived... I don't know where it was I lived now. It was Vermont and Third. Does that sound like a personal oh, yeah. address? It was like... In Oakwood Garden Apartments. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm beginning to understand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I lived there... David Byrne and I had a... We had an apartment each in that place because we were working on Bush of Ghosts at the time. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> Thank you. And, yeah, I didn't really make many friends at that time. Um, I remember being invited round to have lunch with someone and they were all sitting in a hot tub when we arrived. <laughs> the quintessential Los Angeles experience. That was a bit. So now that you've returned, you've, you haven't been here all that long, but I gather you've been back several times since. Not well, several. You, <laughs> you were here in February, last February, for mm -hmm. example. Your impressions of Los Angeles changed? Uh, feel any more... Uh, well, I don't, think, I don't think really Los Angeles was at fault. Mm -hmm. It's me. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't... For a start, I don't drive, you see. And I love walking. Yeah. Well, it's like being a cripple here. I mean, the first time... <laughs> the first time I was here, I said I needed some shoe polish. And I said to someone, do you know where I can get some shoe polish? And she said, oh, it's five minutes down the road. And I walked for about an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> And it, it just doesn't suit... Los Angeles doesn't suit sort of normal bipeds mm -hmm. like me. <laughs> We're at another evolutionary stage. I think so, yeah. yeah you've moved on. <laughs> Enough of this. I'd like to turn the conversation to uh, really the, the whole... the creative process for you, your methodology, how you start, either in terms of making music or for the, the sculptures that you're making now. Is there a commonality between them in terms of process, or are they very different? And if they are different, could you describe maybe starting with music, how it begins, what's the germ of the idea, and how does it develop to the point where it's a finished piece? Mm -hmm. Well, things begin in all sorts of different ways, so I have to tell you the different ways in which they begin. Sometimes things begin from an idea, like music for airports was definitely an idea. I, I was sitting in an airport, I think it was uh, Cologne or Dusseldorf, I can't remember. Anyway, it was designed by one of the... by the father of one of the members of Kraftwerk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Funnily enough. And it's, it's a very nice airport as they go. It's a very pleasant one. And it has a, a beautiful arched, sort of triangular type of ceiling. And I was thinking, what a nice place this would be if it had the right kind of music in. And then I thought... It's funny that airports play such terrible music, usually. And so I started thinking about what kind of music would be right for an airport. Because you have to think of lots of different things. First of all, it doesn't want to conflict with communication between people. Right. So this made me think that you should stay out of the vocal range. You should work above it or below it. Secondly, it doesn't want to be narrative-type music. That means to say it doesn't want to have a structure that goes A, B, C, D, A, B, C, mm -hmm. D, E, that mm -hmm. kind of thing, because it's always being interrupted by announcements. Mm -hmm. And thinking of various things like that, I started to think of what kind of music might work in an airport. And I also, I've, I've always liked the idea of situating music in places that people don't quite expect it, or don't, don't take it seriously, you know. Um, it's, it's a sort of dirty word to do music for a supermarket or for an airport or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's like a sin for a serious composer to do that. Well, we have sort of the, the M word, Muzak. Yes, that's right. Which is that's very, very different, sinful. of course. Yeah. 
but this is the association that people have with music that is not meant for your conscious attention, but has some subliminal purpose, which is usually to make you buy. Mm -hmm. Mine was to make you... The music for airports was really ready to... sort of to make you die, really. I, I thought... <laughs> No, that's, uh, that's serious, funnily enough. <laughs> I thought, when you get on a plane, the last thing you want to hear is music that's going... Nothing's going to happen, everything's fine, planes never crash. <laughs> um, plus, so they always play it on cassette recorders that go... <laughs> right, you are. It's the most disconcerting experience to get on a plane and hear that they can't even make the cassette work properly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was another thing. I thought you had to make music that could withstand bad cassette recorders ah. as well. <laughs> right. But, yeah, I thought the nicest thing to feel if you got on a plane would, would be, um, I don't particularly care if I die. And, and so I thought, what kind of music would get you into that condition? <laughs> Well, I'm making this into a joke, but that's true. Yeah. I was thinking that. That, mm -hmm. that all that other kind of music that's meant to make you forget mm -hmm. is not what I was doing. I want to make you be there, you know, be in that place and not be particularly worried about it all. Mm -hmm. Not to take yourself so seriously, mm -hmm. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. To get lost somehow. Mm -hmm. Get lost. <laughs> <laughs> but music for airports and, I guess, the other pieces that you've done that can be called ambient really can survive at many different levels of attention from the completely subliminal to the fully conscious. And I wonder if that was something that was problematic for you to create or if that was a natural artifact of, of what you did. It was problematic as long as my voice was in it. Uh-huh. That was why I stopped singing, really. Because as long as I was in the music, um, there was a personality there, and I didn't want that personality in there. I didn't want any personalities in there. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make a kind of music that was like a landscape, you know, that um, invited the listener to enter, not with me as a guide, but it said, here's the landscape, you find your way through it, you know. Mm -hmm. Not, hey, look at this bit. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. <laughs> I didn't want to be there all the time. And it's, landscape is quite the right word. If you look at the history of landscape paintings, you notice that some landscapes have people in and some don't. And if you look at the way people look at those two different types of landscape paintings, um, in the first case, their eyes always go sort of to the corners and back to the figure. Mm -hmm. Corner, back to the figure, back to the figure, back to the figure. That kind of thing. That's the anchor for the for the whole piece. If you take that figure out, there's a much more, there's much greater freedom of movement in the eye patterns. And I feel that way about sound as well. I, I felt that as long as there was a voice there, the whole thing was sort of hung around that voice. Mm -hmm. And it's a very difficult problem to solve. If there's a voice and it's saying words, that claims so much perceptual attention. It's like a face claims so much attention. Now, if I do a series of marks like this, your eye wanders through them freely, one assumes. 
Now, if I go like that, <laughs> right, your eye doesn't wander freely anymore. You've got a, uh, well, perhaps you haven't, but I. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. Get it? It's a face. <laughs> it's a face. You know, as soon as, as, soon as the thing becomes... Um, well, you lose some ambiguity, it seems. And but you, you create a position where you know that you're anchoring into a strong gestalt in people's minds. You know that as soon as you do that, that's the primary picture. As soon as you have lyrics, mm -hmm. that's the primary picture. Mm -hmm. And it's, a, it's an almost insoluble problem because... I tried making my lyrics quieter and quieter. That's why nobody can ever hear the words. Mm -hmm. um, but all it does is annoy people. <laughs> you find people sitting there, right. like, onto the speaker like this, and right. trying to hear what you're saying. So the, the, the dilemma is trying to make something that, um, that uses language but doesn't assert language. And I never solved the problem. <laughs> Either so through, I stopped using it for uh, a long while. One solution that you, you might have tried would be, and I guess it didn't work, would be uh, an artificial language. Maybe that would just yeah, be Yeah, I did try that, yeah. Uh -huh. uh, that's why I like doo-wop so much. Because ah. It was mostly artificial language. Mm -hmm. um, at least what the backup singers were singing. And I, I like the idea of nonsense language. In fact, there's a very interesting book... Um, which I think everybody interested in music ought to read. What's that? And I've never met anyone else who's read it, actually, funnily enough. <laughs> it's, it's by Alan Lomax. It's called um, Folk Song Style and Culture. And it's an analysis of 27 variables of singing styles related to certain other social conditions. And he talks about things like raspiness, what kind of societies sing with more raspy mm. voices and mm -hmm. which ones sing with more sweet voices. Mm -hmm. And there are some very strong correspondences, like the raspiest societies are also the most strongly sort of hunter-oriented societies, mm -hmm. like the pearl fishers of Persia have really raspy voices. Mm -hmm. Red Indians have very raspy voices. It seems like all the hunting societies, the societies where where the male is the important member, in fact, the, the important survival member, right. have the very strong uh, raspy sound. Where in more matriarchal societies, you, you get see the development of polyphony and harmony and uh, fewer harmonics in the singing. Mm -hmm. So one of the other variables he talks about is um, percentage of nonsense syllables. And the... The more hierarchical a society is, the fewer nonsense syllables it has. <laughs> There's a very strong correspondence over about the 250 cultures he studied. Mm -hmm. So if you go to the um, pygmies of Central Africa, there are perhaps a couple of words in their songs, and the rest is all scat. Oh, I see. Um, and then you go to, you know, European classical music, for what it's worth, and... It's, <laughs> the ratio is yes, it's, changed it's the inverse of yeah. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then, your solution was to eliminate the voice completely. Well, that's what I tried, but I wasn't. Um, 
I'm still not happy with it because it's a pity not to use this thing, you know. I like singing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I can't design a music that can accommodate that level of attention and the other levels of attention that I want to mm -hmm. have. Mm -hmm. So this is an ongoing problem for mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. um, one of the ways of solving it is, or, or of approaching it, is by not putting the words into the music. So you have the music and then you have a title. The title is really the lyrics of the music. Uh -huh. do, you, do you see what I mean? So it exists separately from the title, from the music, but it modifies the mm -hmm. perception of it. So I've tried that a few times and that's all right, I suppose. Um, but I'm still looking for an answer to this and I'd be happy for any clues as to how it might be done. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe later on someone might have a suggestion. In your visual work, what kind of problems have you encountered? What kind of solutions have you found? And maybe we should talk because I think, generally speaking, it's safe to say that more people are, uh, you know, are familiar with your music than with your visual work. We now have a, an exhibition of your work, which is just open today at the Santa Monica Museum, in Santa Monica, of course. And so people have a chance to experience that now. But maybe you could talk a little bit about what you're doing in the area of sculpture and, and put that in the context of the creative process. It's very difficult to talk when you haven't already seen these things. It's hard to describe them. Um, I've actually got some slides here. Shall I show those now? Please do. That's a good idea. They don't really tell you much because these, these pieces change all the time. Right, so I'm going to try to explain what these things are, what these things do. These are five three-dimensional structures made of uh, white cardboard. <laughs> and underneath each structure is a television screen facing upwards. So each of these is sitting on a TV. And the TVs have um, images on them, which are fields of color. And those fields of color are always changing. So as a result, the colors in the objects always change. At what rate of? change very quickly or very slowly? Very slow. Well, some of them, some of them are slower than others. That, that fourth one is pretty fast, actually. <laughs> Hold on. This is also a TV screen behind all of this. God, it's hard to explain these. Um, why don't you just go to the exhibition? <laughs> Um, this is an, uh, like a box, actually, an L-shaped box into which light is being projected from a television screen. And it has a flat front surface. So all those bits of, all those lines are actually made by pieces of cardboard. Hold right, on. So here's, here's the television. A Sony, by the way. Always. <laughs> and... Sitting on top of that is a box. Now, between the, the front and back surface of that box, it's, a, it's made of iridescent, no, that's not the word, opalescent material. Um, it's diffusing material. Between those two surfaces is a, a series of cardboard shapes. They, they connect from one surface to the other. If you looked at the front of that picture that I was just doing, 
you would see that. Mm. Okay. Now, what happens, this is a cylinder connecting the two surfaces. So all the light from the screen at that point in the cylinder sums together and makes one color. That's all it is. It's a very simple idea. Um, in here, all the light will sum to make one color and it will fade out to the surrounding colors at the edges. It doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, I don't know why I bother to explain it, really. <laughs> uh, you know, every, t every time I've ever explained these things, people go to the exhibition and they say, well, why didn't you say it was like that? <laughs> so it's like having a painting that can go through lots of different um, existences. And... But the video image, is an abstract image or is it some concrete... It's an abstract image, really, uh -huh. usually um, just very strong fields of color and not at all related to the picture that you see in the end. Right. I mean, for example, the image on this is uh, six concentric squares. It yes. doesn't have any wavy lines in it or anything like that. Yes. So when I'm making these pieces, I'm always working... I have a monitor set up like this and I'm always working on top of the monitor cutting out bits of cardboard and trying to make them balance and then moving around, you know. So, really, the materials that you are manipulating are the sculptural ones with the video image being fixed, predetermined, if you will. That's right, that's predetermined. And, and, and it's, all, it's just changing all the time. All the color fields are changing uh -huh. all the time. Did you do any experimentation at all before deciding on what the video image would be like? Or did you completely determine that abstractly before deciding to, you know, what the sculpture would be like? Well, I've made dozens of these tapes that were meant for these pieces, but only about seven of them really work well. Um, and it's a bit of a mystery to, to work out what it is that makes one tape produce good final results and another tape not. Uh -huh. And your music accompanies these sculptures. That's right, yeah, there's always music in the installations as well. Um, and the music never repeats. It never sounds very different either. <laughs> Your first video installation, in fact, was in 1983 at La Forêt in, in Tokyo. That was... Uh, That's not true. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> That was my first big one. Ah. I, I had about 40 small ones before that. Okay. So, uh, my, what I was leading up to was, that whether it was the first or not, it led, I think, to a commission from Sony, was it? Mm -hmm. to, uh, to do a piece called Thursday Afternoon. And my question about Thursday Afternoon, I've had it described, but it's still not clear in my mind. Uh, it was four TV monitors that were to be turn 90 degrees off their normal axis. Mm -hmm. it, it, was it meant as an installation, or were they sold as tapes and you requested whoever bought the tape to turn their TV Yeah, yeah, that's, that's how it was done. Uh -huh. They're sold as tapes. I see. It's, I know it's inconvenient for people who use their television as a way of supporting flower pots and photographs of their girlfriends, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which is probably the best use for television currently. <laughs> 
But ever since the, the very first thing I ever made in video was made with the screen turned that way up. Mm -hmm. I've never worked. I, I, in fact, I don't like it the other way. Mm -hmm. It just looks like television then. Mm -hmm. as, soon as, you, as soon as you turn it on its side and you have that shape. Well, for one thing, the, the scan images are, are uh, disoriented. Yeah, the distortion is, yeah. is running this way and it looks all right. It looks like rain. Uh -huh. Yeah. Nothing, you know, nothing in, in your visual experience moves mm. that way. Do you know what I mean? But lots of things move that way. Because um, gravity moves that way, you know? Ah, so uh, people were instructed to turn it specifically, I guess, either to the left or the right, but they, they didn't have a choice, because if they turned it the other way, it would It'd go upside up. upside down, yeah. Which yeah, they had, wrong. To, they had to turn it one way. Uh-huh. And what was the image then? I mean, what was the image on the tape? On Thursday afternoon? Yes. It was an image of a woman, seven different, well, it was a total actually of about one and a half minutes of video slowed down in seven different sections. I, I videoed her quite a lot. I, I spent a whole Thursday afternoon videoing this woman. In fact, that's how it got that title. Right. Um, and I picked certain moments of that and I slowed them down a great deal and treated them I suppose it's the same thing. I was trying to use video to make pictures instead of to tell stories. But uh, an image is, is, as you say, so a concrete image like that, especially of a, of a human, mm -hmm. is very loaded. Given that, was it possible? Did it succeed? I like it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like it a lot, actually. I, I think um, particularly the second and the last piece, I'm very fond of those. and. I, I like those because they succeeded, in my estimation, to do that thing of making something that really worked like a painting, mm -hmm. but changed as well. Um, and when you look at those things, you don't think of television and you don't refer to television. It, there's no story, of course. Nothing happens, as usual. It's just something that moves very slowly. Um, as a result, you can put those tapes on and you can just have them playing. Yes. It's a nice way to use video. Mm. Um, you know, we've been conditioned to accept that television has to be filled with a certain type of information. Well, I suppose one of the things that I do is to say there are other types of information as well. And video doesn't only deal with images. It deals with light. Right. Light includes images, but light is the overall category of it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's generally overlooked. It's like uh, until about 20 years ago, it was fairly well overlooked that music dealt with sound. sound. <laughs> and you time. Know? And time, yeah. Mm -hmm. Music used to deal with melody, harmony, rhythm, those kind of considerations. Mm -hmm. And it's quite clear why that was the case until, at least until this century, there were very strict limitations on what was possible in terms of timbre, in terms of sound. You know, a clarinet was that range of possibilities, a violin was that range, a piano was that range, um, and those were the cards that you played with. Yeah. Well, that isn't the story anymore. You know, if you hear a, an interesting electric guitar player, he's not playing one instrument. He has at his disposal an infinite number of instruments. and. Part of the skill of a good guitar player is 
choosing his instrument for that particular piece and designing and making his instrument for that piece. Sure. You know, he, he makes his sound. Um, that will be a whole series of processes, ways of playing a particular guitar rather than another one. Sure. Um, it's, this is the thing that classical musicologists have completely failed to understand about rock music, in my opinion. They're still looking at melody, harmony, rhythm. They say, we heard these melodies in 1732. These harmonies are old hat. They haven't, they've just completely missed the thing that is really interesting about mm -hmm. rock music, mm -hmm. which is that every interesting rock song is a new universe of sound. Right. And nobody's, you know, of the classical people, they don't see that. To them, it's all repetition. Well, I think it really was through the, the innovations of, well, of course, there's, there's a larger cultural context, but Cage, certainly, his philosophical tenet was that any sound is possible. Any sound can be put to musical mm -hmm. use. And in fact, just as you said, what a, good, a great guitar player is the person who, out of the infinite possibilities available to him or her, choosing the right sound. And so maybe, could we say that it's the task of the composer to choose the right sound from an infinite world of possibilities? Yeah, but there's also a whole other question now as well, which is that the location of music has become such an expanded possibility as well. If somebody was writing music in 1890, he knew fairly well what the destination of that music would be. Right. He knew the type of people who would hear it. He knew the type of place they would listen to it in. And he knew that it wouldn't be played very often as well. Right. You know, um, it would have been a big achievement in, at that time to have heard the same piece of music maybe 12 times in your life. Consequently, there's a lot of redundancy in classical music. You can't rely on people hearing the thing over and over again, so you have to build the repetition into the music itself. Right. Right. Um, so now you have another interesting question as well. You not, only, you not only design your sound, but you design the place where your music goes. What are you making music for? Is it for people walking around with a Walkman? Is it for people going to a concert hall? Is it for people who sitting in front of their speakers at home? Mm -hmm. Is it for people doing the vacuum cleaning or the shopping? You certainly have much more control over that than before, but with a record or a compact disc or even with radio, you really cannot be sure whether that person will have his radio by his bedside or whether he'll have it cranked up in his car or while doing the dishes in the kitchen. No, you can't be sure, and that, that creates all sorts of interesting compositional mm -hmm. <laughs> questions. Um, Is the task then to find a, uh, a music that can work under a myriad of circumstances? If you're doing pop music, it, I think it is, yes. If you're doing pop music that, is, that you know is going to be exposed in all of those ways, mm -hmm. then I think it is. Um, because we can't do, like, the laundry mix, as a, or the disco mix. <laughs> <or> the <laughs> <laughs> well, for instance, if you're making a, a record that you know is going to be played on the radio, mm -hmm. it is simply stupid to put bass signals, important bass singles, signals in it, that are too low for any radio loudspeaker to reproduce. Right. Um, so if you, 
it's, it's a mismatch, you know, to do that. Right. Um, and most composers are working in a mismatched way at the moment, is my contention. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, most people who make records still imagine that people go into the shop, get the record, the one they've saved up for all week, go home, put it on and listen like this, right. you know. <laughs> now, that, isn't a, that is indeed how music is still listened to in some cases. But there's a whole other way of listening to music. Um, people buy records like the way I buy records. I put them on while I'm doing something else, and I think, oh, that track's nice. I'll listen to that again. Mm -hmm. I find the three tracks I like, and I stick them onto a cassette. Mm -hmm. um, or I, I find that there's one side that I always enjoy playing when I'm doing the washing up, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, something you like that. Um, this. This um, connection hasn't generally been made by composers that people are using music. Right. They're not just... Um, they're not passive in the same way as they used to be to music. They're not sitting there with their full attention on it. Yeah, it's the not the dedicated experience that you have when you go or when you went to the concert hall. That's right. You know. it's, it's quite a different experience. It can still be that. That isn't excluded. Right. But there's this whole other... Um, spectrum that has opened up, sure. just like there's another spectrum of sound possibilities that electronics opened up. Right. And part of this spectrum has been dubbed New Age. And people say, oh, New Age, terrible, rubbish. And generally they're right. It's, it's mostly not very interesting music, but most pop music isn't very interesting. Most classical music isn't, you know. Mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't condemn a, a category because a great percentage of the work within it is not interesting. The idea is interesting. The idea that people are using music in a way that would have seemed terribly idealistic in the 60s, you know, when people talked about, oh, God, it's terrible that everyone's attention span is so short and they have to have this and that in the music. But it turns out they don't have to have all those things. Mm -hmm. People are quite capable of listening to music that goes on for a long time, that doesn't have lyrics, that doesn't have obvious strong beats, mm -hmm. that doesn't have um, strong melodies necessarily. Um, well, it's, it's actually a big advance in listening practice that New Age has been successful. I, I think it's, at the moment, a category that demands some good music to be made for it. But Would you put any of your work into the category of New Age? Well, I wouldn't. <laughs> I, I wouldn't belong to any club that would have me as a member. <laughs> uh, you've also done, you know, any number of media-specific compositions, including the Thursday afternoon. The release of that was specifically for the medium of the compact disc. Can you tell us what the implications of the compact disc were to you? What made that, that piece a CD-specific piece? I wanted it to be long. That was the main thing. Um, I've, I've been thinking for a long time that the kind of music I, I was making at that time... I don't make quite this kind of music anymore now. I don't make anything in that area anymore at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, but the kind of music I was making demanded tremendous length so that it didn't finish unless you wanted it to. Mm -hmm. That was the idea, that you could put something on and just leave it there for as long as you wanted. Mm -hmm. um, and then you take it off and put something else on. And 
it was easy to achieve that with cassettes. For instance, um, my record on land and every record I made after that, which is not very many, <laughs> um, instead of splitting the album side A and side B on the cassette, I put the whole record on both sides mm. of the cassette, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So on each side of the cassette, so that if you wanted to have a, a musical continuum, which is often what I want from music, it just did it. You, you just left it on, and when it got to the end, you switched it over or preferably got an auto-reverse machine. Right. Um, and the thing just played on and on. Mm -hmm. And compact discs are unfortunately limited to 70 minutes or so. But, you know, I look forward to eight-hour recordings. Right. Well, I, I, the, it's, it's uh, inching longer and longer. I think we're up to the high 70s now. And we also mm -hmm. have the ability to put some players into a sort of auto repeat modes. Yes, and continue on. that's right. But the CD also, it seems to me, has some other potential which I, I, I think you use, and I, I dare say consciously. For example, the absence of surface noise means that you can, you can raise the, the level of silence, if you will, mm -hmm. to, uh, to its full musical potential. Mm -hmm. Did you think about that at all? Yeah. Because of the way I work, there's never really silence in what I do because there's so much hiss. Mm. Because I, I'm not a very... It seems to be intrinsic to the nature of the things I do that they can't be technically perfect. Mm -hmm. Like all these pieces I've shown you, if you look at how they're made, they're really badly made. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the reason for that is that I never stick at something for long enough to learn how to make it right. By the time I get to that point of technical, where I could actually make it technically perfect, I've become interested in something else. So um, I, I always feel like I'm operating rather at the frontier of what I can understand. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't know what it's going to be like at the end. So I don't know how to make it really neat and tidy. I see. Um, so, I, I do appreciate the silence of compact discs, and I wish I could get some into my music. <laughs> so the constraint there is the noise level of your own music, not yeah. of, the, of the CD, yeah. I see. Mm -hmm. You know, because I work, I work um, very much in a collage fashion. I, I play something, and that sounds all right. I put it on the shelf, and then I'm working on something else, and I think, maybe that other piece would work with this. Yeah. So then that comes off, and gets redubbed onto this at half speed or something like that. So there's always a build-up of mm -hmm. noise. And I must say, I like the noise myself. Mm -hmm. I don't know why people have such a thing against it. Um, I, for instance, today I was down at the exhibition this morning and I was listening to the... Something went wrong with one of the cassette players. I had to try to fix it. And I walked out into the show and I was listening to everything and I thought... There's just not enough hiss in this piece. Uh. <laughs> and so I just went and switched the Dolbys off on one of the four cassette recorders. Mm. And there was this reassuring <laughs> sound. Well, you laugh, but there are actually devices that are sold. People pay money to have white noise generators, hiss generators, if you will, uh, as... Uh, for the purpose of sleep inducement, apparently mm -hmm. it does have very soothing qualities yeah. in moderation. And that's why the ocean, of course, is a big white noise generator. Except I remember I went to 
the first time I came to Los Angeles, I went to visit someone who lived in Malibu, right on the beach. And we went into their house, and it was totally silent. And the waves were sort of crashing almost on the window. Yeah. And then I noticed they had triple glazing. <laughs> and I said, it's funny you should sort of buy a house by the ocean. And the guy said, fucking drives you mad after all. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a radio station here in Los Angeles known as The Wave, and in fact... See? <laughs> <laughs> you have another one, actually, that I like. It says... It says, Continuous Soft Hits. <laughs> I, I, saw that, I saw that on the back of a bus, and it sounded like some sort of... Obscure Chinese torture. <laughs> so, you want to listen to any music? Should we play anything? Give, yeah, give them a break from hearing me talk. <laughs> Hold on, they've all gone backwards. Okay. Shall I play you a song? That's not one of mine. <laughs> You don't have to applaud. <laughs> it's by someone else. I didn't realize there were three albums in this. Oh, set. yeah, I think actually there are four. Oh, here's a good one. It's Fingertips, the last right. song on this side. This was a song that had a big impression on me. I was about the same age as Stevie Wonder when that came out. Um, he was, I think he was 11 at the time this was made. Uh-huh. Did you play the harmonica ever? Yeah, I did. <laughs> Can I go to the toilet while you're playing this? Sorry. You're my guest. <laughs> we'll both be back in a minute. Do you know where the toilet is? Yeah, right back here. No, no.
Actually, the first thing I think I heard that sounded like gospel music. I think Stevie Wonder was 11 or 12 when he recorded that. Yeah, I think so. He was called Little Stevie Wonder then. <laughs> okay, that was just a little toilet <laughs> break for us, sorry. <laughs> it didn't really have any connection to anything we were talking about at all. <laughs> I'd like to ask you about the pro um, collaboration and the problems or joys inherent in that. You have, it seems to me, some very specific, you might even say strict ideas about your approach to music making, your use of process, of structure, and yet you've had, I think, very successful collaboration with, as an example, Harold Budd, who is really the antithesis of that in his very intuitive approach, which is completely unsystematic. How are you two able to work together, given the polarity? Well, it's not such a clear polarity as you might think uh -huh. from the outside. Um, for a start, all of my important musical decisions are made intuitively. Mm -hmm. it, it really comes down to, do I like it? Nothing more theoretical than that. And if I don't, no matter how clever it is, I'm not interested in it. It has to seduce me in a certain way. And that's true of Harold as yes. well. He's... Um, and also, Harold is more theoretical than you might think. Not according to Harold. <laughs> ah, well, <laughs> Harold's background is in, um, I suppose you'd call it minimalist music. That's a pretty conceptual area. Mm -hmm. You don't forget all that overnight. <laughs> you know? Well, if, if each of us chooses to work with a different aspect of our personalities, it isn't because we don't have the other. Mm -hmm. It's... It's just us, you know, it's like being left-handed or right-handed. You can still use the other hand, but your strength is in one, perhaps. Uh -huh. um, so you have a kind of complementary relationship? Yeah, they, they overlap, I suppose, like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, it's a pleasure to work with someone who just seems to be able to uh, give birth to beautiful music. Mm -hmm. And it gave me a possibility that I hadn't really had before, which is I could trust that the music was beautiful. And I therefore just concentrated on this one issue of sound and texture of sound. Um, because the division on the records is very clear in a way. All the musical ideas are Harold's. All the textural or sound ideas were mine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's pretty much how it works. Mm -hmm. And on the second record, Dan Lanois also was involved on that side of the process. On your side? Yes. Yes. Um, and... Well, did you sit down was, and sort of affect the division of labor, or is no, it, was no. just, it was very natural? That, that was just the things that we both could do. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, there's some overlap, you know, but the overlap is quite small, and those, those were, seemed to be our areas of competence. Um, and it was a very, very good combination, a very good marriage like that. Um, and stress-free, because the territories didn't overlap that much, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Could you speak a little bit about some of the other people or groups that you've worked with? I mean, you were the producer for U2, for example. What was that like? Lovely. <laughs> um, well, first of all, th those people are the nicest group of people I ever worked with, I think. Um, and 
it's, it's really a pleasure to be with them because I, I think I'm finding something out all the time. Not only about music, but about working with people. Mm -hmm. um, U2 is a very big organization now. There are, you know, I guess, well over 100 people involved pretty much full-time in it. Mm -hmm. I don't know the numbers, but... Um, they're nearly all Irish, <laughs> and a lot of them all went to school together. Um, it's very much a, like a tribe now. Um, and that, that feeling of respect is very clear with those people. Um, what made working with them such a pleasure was that there was... It was 99% work and 1% diplomacy. A lot of the working situations that one finds oneself in with groups, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, what's his name, Perez de Quella work, you know, <laughs> you, you, sort of United Nations type bartering and... Uh -huh. shuttle, shuttle diplomacy. Yeah, well, uh, you can have a solo if he can have <laughs> that kind of thing. Right. It's, it's miserable. I mean, I, I'm not interested in doing that, and I'm, I'm really bad at it as well, actually. I'm, mm -hmm. um, and... To be in a situation where there's such a respect between the members themselves that one person will defer readily and say, yeah, that's obviously a better idea. Uh -huh. <laughs> and you think, blimey, I've never heard anyone say that in a recording <laughs> studio before. <laughs> um, and also, it's one of the only groups I've known that really works as a group. It's not one person with lots of clever ideas sort of dragging these other uh -huh. people along. Are all the musical decisions collectively made, or is it a kind of fluctuating relationship of authority and...? They're not all collective. Um, well, for example, Bono says a lot. He talks a lot. And he's, he's always full of ideas, and they, they fly out of him. Adam doesn't say very much, but when he does, he always says something quite important, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. So the balance is somehow maintained. Like, Adam will um, not talk for a couple of weeks, really. Or not. <laughs> no, that, that's not true, actually, but um, he'll chat. But he'll suddenly say, um, I think this whole direction is a bit suspicious, <laughs> or something like that. So he'll ask a major question at some point. And the same with Larry as well. So, though uh, if you just measured talking hours, you would think that there was a hierarchy of um, control in the group. Uh -huh. In fact, there isn't. It's a very, very interesting unit they have there. As a social unit, it's quite unique in my experience. And I'm, I'm always interested in these social arrangements. Like that, when we first started talking, I was talking about the cardio piece. Right. That was a very good instance of a of a novel social arrangement. Well, U2 is another one. Earlier when you mentioned uh, Bush of Ghosts, the collaboration you did with David Byrne, we got some applause. Maybe you could speak a little bit about that, your work with David Byrne. Well, I worked with him quite a lot, of course, on that record, and then on the three Talking Heads records that I worked on. Um, well, funnily enough, that record sort of was conceived here in Los Angeles. Yes, you mentioned at the Oakwood Apartments. <laughs> That's right. Third in Vermont. Now, there used to be a good Japanese restaurant right on that corner. Yeah, Ino Sushi or something. Ino Sushi. I think that's what it was called. <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to own that restaurant. 
Well, you know, in Japanese, Eno means a good thing. Quite right, too. Yeah. <laughs> in Ghanaian, it means old mother, <laughs> I was told. And she was a good thing, too. <laughs> um, so, so it's, I mean... Well, what had happened, I, I'd been working in New York. I'd just moved to New York. Um, I wasn't really aware that I had moved there, but it turned out I had. Mm -hmm. I, I thought I was on holiday. <laughs> um, and I was just fascinated by the radio, particularly by all these nutcases you have on the radio. We, we don't really have nutcases on the radio in England. We, do, we don't have anyone like Morton Downey, whatever his name is. Um, because we're all so polite, you know. And everybody on, everybody on the radio or TV says, and what do you think? And, and so what's your position on this? I see. So would you say, it's all like that. We, we just don't have people who walk around and punch their guests. <laughs> and this is a... One of the tragedies of European culture—it sort of lost yeah, its spunk. One of, of the reasons for the decline of yeah. uh, <laughs> the British Empire. It is. We we haven't really come to terms with television in the way that you have. Mm. We're still in the sort of Oxford debating era. Um, anyway, coming to New York, and I'd flip through all the sort of poor radio stations—you know, the things that are always asking you for money on Sunday morning—and just hearing these complete lunatics commanding airtime, I thought, wonderful, this, is, this really is the land of the free. <laughs> and they, I didn't know where any of it was coming from or who it was meant for or anything. Mm -hmm. And they sounded sort of like ghosts to me, these voices, you know. Mm -hmm. You just flip through the radio band, there would be some guy exercising someone. <laughs> and... <laughs> On the air, you know. Right. Not, not in the privacy of their own home, but on the air. They... <laughs> um, and I, th I thought, I suppose that you being Americans are fairly immune to this, but it still fascinates me that these intensely private experiences become broadcast like that. Oh, yeah. You don't have, uh, like, uh, talk show psychologists in, in Britain. Blimey, do you have them here? Oh, good heavens. <laughs> It's a growth industry. We're well, you have psychologists for everything, though. I read, um, I read a report in one of the newspapers. You know, uh, Sarah Ferguson's just had her baby. Right. The, what do you call the baby of a duchess? Uh, don't the, ask me. Probably the Marchioness of York or something like mm. that. Um, and they haven't decided on a name for eight or nine days. It's a big national crisis. <laughs> and, of course, when, when the story came to America, they interviewed a psychologist. And he said this probably indicated that there was some ambivalence in the family. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that, that guy deserves $150,000 a year for insights. <laughs> But no, anyway, back to the... Sorry, I... <laughs> I'll try to stay serious. Um, so, the first piece on Bush of Ghosts, the first one I made was uh, Mea Culpa. Mm -hmm. And this was a particular broadcast. I was listening to this thing, and I used to just record these things. I didn't know why, but I thought they were so priceless that I had to play them to people in England, you know? <laughs> because I knew people would say, my 
God, what are they doing over there? <laughs> it's the same way I used to get everyone to watch Jimmy Swaggart when they came to New York. My hero. Ah. <laughs> um, and so I, I recorded this one thing from this talk show, which was this crazed man from Brooklyn calling into a local politician who had the most oily, disgusting voice I'd ever heard. It, it was like this. <laughs> it was all falsehood and reassurance mixed together. And this other man was all uncertainty and passion. I thought the contrast was fantastic, and the two were talking to each other. Mm. So I made that piece, and I, I thought that was quite good, and I, but I didn't know what to do with it. Where does this belong, I thought, in the world of things? Um, and so then uh, I started thinking... Maybe it was an interesting idea to make a record that only, instead of using my voice or someone else's voice, someone you knew, yeah. just used voices that were in the air, you know, available voices. And so by that time I'd moved to, to Los Angeles, so I called David and said um, he'd worked on some of the, what subsequently became some of the tracks for this record. And... Uh, we discussed this idea and so then he came to Los Angeles and we started working on that some more and we worked on it here and in San Francisco and in New York, it took ages to make mm. um, and one of the reasons was because we completely finished it at one point and uh, of course we had to get permission for all these voices actually we never did get permission for some of them because we couldn't find out where they came from but mm -hmm. One of them was this really weird woman called uh, Catherine Coleman. Well, I understood that you, in fact, didn't, couldn't get permission for that. No, they definitely didn't want to give us permission. Yeah. <laughs> and so we had to recall the record. Yeah. We'd already printed the sleeves and pressed the records. We had to recall it and take that track off. Yeah. And, so, and then we changed some other things as well. Then we released it, and about a couple of years later my management got a letter from the World Council of Islam which said they represented um, Islam believers in 140 countries or something like that and were prepared to take any action necessary to prevent us releasing the record any further because we also had a song that used the Quran on it. So we had to take that off as well. Um, and then the sanitized version doesn't have Elizabeth Coleman, what's her Catherine, Catherine Coleman, yeah. or the Quran on it. <laughs> but anyway, so we we worked on that thing in a most. It was a really homemade record in a way because most of the time it was just David and I working on it together, sort of sleeves rolled up. Did yeah, common decision making, or yeah, that's right. And did you sort of slide into areas as you did in your work with Harold Budd? It seemed that there were areas that Harold worked in, and an area that was more appropriate for you. Did you and David Byrne find that you had certain vicinities that you each staked out, or was it completely communal in a sense? It was. It was much more communal. Mm -hmm. um, we eclipsed the same areas pretty much. Now, because mm -hmm. he's a much, much, much better musician than me. So when it came to playing rhythm tracks, for instance, he played those much better than I did. Mm -hmm. um, however, I looked after the sort of sound element, the sound end of it, yeah. and I suppose I was the source for a lot of the 
the voices that were actually used and finding voices that I thought had an, could be recontexted in some interesting way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was pretty much a shared record. After, that, after the first couple of pieces, we really worked together on it. And we had very little equipment. I didn't have any equipment in America. Um, I got a, one of my old synthesizers over. And he had a couple of guitars, and I had a bass guitar. And nearly all the sounds we made, I had a pressure-sensitive microphone. Mm-hmm. This is a microphone they use in medical diagnoses. I thought it was really cool to use a thing like that. They, they sort of stick it on various bits of you to measure uh-huh. what's happening. Uh-huh. Well, I found that you could turn anything into a percussion instrument with this thing. So I'd sort of stick it onto one side of a glass and play the other mm-hmm. kind of thing. So we were, we were always inventing instruments during that. Pity we couldn't play them, but we invented them. <laughs> <laughs> but the piece really predates the use of, of sampling technology, although, I mean, the, the, the aesthetic is that of sampling, but it predates the actual digital, digitalization and performance on computer or keyboard. Are mm-hmm. you interested in sampling now, or any? what kind of new technological innovations are interesting for you? Or, conversely, do you think technology is a dead end? I think the fax is a very interesting innovation. <laughs> I do. I think that's much more interesting than sampling. I mean, sampling is just, just a fast access tape recorder, as right. far as I'm concerned. Fax is really something new in the world. I have one. <laughs> I love the idea of being able to send a drawing to someone, you know. Because um, I, I always think in diagrams. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to say, it goes like this, right. send it off, that's wonderful. And what other things do I think are interesting technically? Um, I like all these different things you have with the telephone in America, like call interrupt and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm partial to automatic teller machines myself. Just, oh, yeah, that's yeah, a good idea, very too. Very convenient. That's a very good idea. Yeah. In fact, I haven't had to go into a bank for about five years now. <laughs> um, As for the facts, uh, just an interesting note. I mean, of course, using the telephone, it's basically converting the printed, the, uh, a visual image, a two-dimensional visual image, into sound, which is then transmitted and received and then reconverted back to a complementary visual image, mm-hmm. might not one experiment with modifying that sound through technical means and seeing what the results are? You might. The, the only thing is, in my experience, making transfers from one medium to the other is not very successful <laughs> because the, the different sensors don't, don't map onto each other very mm-hmm. well. Um, the, the classic example is the sort of discotheque thing where you have high frequency, mid frequency, low frequency, red, in, green, blue in lights. lights yeah. mm-hmm. <coughs> well, in fact, your ear doesn't split things up that way. Mm-hmm. And your, your perception doesn't regard something high as automatically different in a predictable way from something low. Um, so those kind of transfers don't... I've never seen one work very well. Um, I think that's true. 
Yeah, I can't remember a good instance of a direct mathematical transfer of that mm -hmm. kind of information. Mm -hmm. Well then, uh, what do you look for in the future? What would you like to see, ideally, in, in a studio of yours? In the immediate future, I look forward to something to eat. I'm starving, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just suddenly realized, I wondered if, if my stomach was communicating to the audience. Uh -huh. I can hear it really rumbling away here. Mm -hmm. I, I hope it's not upsetting anyone except me. Um, in my own studio, well, I would, what I've always loved is loudspeakers. I love loudspeakers, mm -hmm. and I like playing with them. And I recently had this, I was sitting there, I was fed up one day, and I was thinking, what do I really want in life? And I thought, I want a big, messy room with lots of loudspeakers <laughs> in it. Because I think I could really, I could happily spend a large portion of the remainder of my life playing with loudspeakers. I think they're, they're still very interesting things that people haven't really fully um, grasped yet, you know, um, though, even though they were invented a long time ago. So I want a sort of a workshop, because at one time in my life I wanted to be an inventor, you see. Mm -hmm. And in fact I did make a couple of inventions. Um, I invented a tunnel digging machine, <laughs> and, and I invented a a new kind of trash can that you could operate with one hand. Oh. And, and I thought, for a long time I thought that's what I would be, an inventor, but it's hard to be an inventor now because people like Kodak steal your inventions, you know. Um, then I, after deciding I couldn't be an inventor, I thought I'd pretend to be an artist. And then I could be an inventor surreptitiously, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> so that's what I've been doing. Right. Maybe now might be a good time to entertain some questions from the audience. I'm sure there are people who have... We'd like to, uh, if you do have a question for Brian, I think it would be best uh, to confine your questions to anything that we've discussed in the course of this evening. So, if you have any reactions... Like sex or violence. <laughs> yes, right. Well, we covered quite a lot, I think. <laughs> it's a little difficult for me to see. If we could have a little bit more house lights, then I can more easily recognize people. What we'll do, you don't really... If you ask a question, Carl will repeat it. So that... Well, is that well, a good idea? So that everyone can hear what it Let's try it out, see how it works. On the other hand, if you don't ask a question, we'll just sit here like yeah. prats no, for we'll 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> You can go get some food. Here's a question. This is the one I paid. Yeah. Uh, your experience with recording your own voice, how is it to produce someone like Bono or David Byrne, and what do you run up against when d trying to produce a particular effect uh, using their voices? Did everyone hear that question? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, well, it's a great pleasure to produce somebody who can really sing, for a start. <laughs> and both of those people, in their separate ways, are very, very interesting singers. Um, David is an interesting singer in the sense that he has, he has created a music that can accommodate his voice. He's not a good singer in the technical sense of good singers, but he's, he's made a music that makes his voice good. 
Um, Bono is a great singer in any sense of the word, I think. You know, he would be a great singer, whatever he sang. Um, so it's a, it's a real pleasure working with Bono because his voice is always surprising. When he's, if he sings a song once, it'll be different from the next time he sings it. And we always, when we're recording, we always end up with sort of eight tracks of Bono and me with this big list and that line in that track was fantastic and, oh, God, this line was unforgettable and, mm. you know, <laughs> trying to... Um, so there are no problems involved in a process like that. The only problem is how long do you let them go on for, you know? Um, Bono is a kind of a perfectionist and he, he's always rethinking the way he sings a song. Um, he's rethinking the persona that, that the voice is presenting. Is it more desperate? Is it more warm? Is it more sensual? Is it more approachable? All of these different things. And he'll, he's kind of maneuvering himself into the song all the time. And, well, actually, Dan is a better judge of the... Dan Lanois is a better judge of this kind of thing than me. He, he seems to have a good sense of when to say... Okay, that's it. You've you've got it now. You know, uh, don't do any more. <laughs> because honestly, sometimes Bono will go on for days. <laughs> um, so, um, when you go to make an album, do you usually go in with the concept of an actual album and then make it from a concept, or do you ever just get a feel and express it in song? Can you repeat? Maybe I should repeat anyway, just for the purpose of the taping that's going mm -hmm. on. Uh, as I understood the question, when you go in to make an album, have you basically formed the album in your mind, or are you composing as you are making the album? Is that fair? Or just like, do you ever just feel something and you just have to express it? Or do you ever feel something and have to express it? No, I never feel anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm English, you know, we don't feel things. <laughs> Not like you lot, you're always feeling all the time. <laughs> Actually, this, this puts me in mind of a good story. A friend of mine went to the Isle of Wight to see a Buddhist monk, and the monk said to him, the first thing you've got to learn to do is to stop thinking. And so my friend spent, like, the first month there, and he managed to stop thinking. And then the guy said to him, now, stop feeling. <laughs> um, actually, I do feel things now and again. Um, <laughs> hunger, particularly. <laughs> but in, as a serious answer to your question, what um, a lot of the best things I've done have sort of been made almost without me knowing that I was doing them. Um, I, I sometimes, it seems I sometimes have to have an alibi for what I'm doing. So, um, for instance, On Land, which is my favorite record of my own at the moment. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the way that record got started was I was in the studio trying to do the next record in the series, which included Another Green World, Before and After Science. What's the next one? I was in there doing all these things. And they were okay. And always at the end of the day, I would be sitting there twiddling with the things I'd recorded. 
and I'd sort of slow the tape down, leave most of the instruments out, and do something strange with what was left. And I think it might be useful as a film soundtrack one day. That's always my alibi, you see. It might be useful as a film soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is the way I allow myself to do funny music. And then I would take all the tapes home, and I would never listen to the stuff that I was supposed to be doing. And I'd find myself always listening again to these odd things. And they really did sound odd to me. I mean, I'd never heard music that sounded like that. And I had no intention whatever of releasing it as a record at the time. But I kept listening to it. And at that time, I was, I was living in New York, and I was very friendly with Bob Quine, who, who, was a guitar, who is a guitar player very nice man who was the player for the guitarist for Richard Hell and the Voidoids and subsequently Lou Reed and others and he's a very inscrutable chap wears dark glasses all the time he used to be a lawyer <laughs> one of the only guitar players who was a lawyer and he'd come around and say best thing you've ever done <laughs> few words and I'd listen to these things and I think I really do like this stuff. And I, this record started to kind of slip out from underneath me sort of thing. And I started to find myself with more and more of these pieces of music that seemed to have a, uh, an identity, you know, they belong together. And I thought, what, what am I actually doing with this music? What is this meant to be? How do I expect people to hear this? How am I listening to it myself? And. Uh, I thought, what I'm really doing is making landscapes of some kind. And I'm making places for, for people to visit with their ears. And as soon as I had that idea, of course, the record fell together very quickly. But it took about two years of pretending that I wasn't really doing that to do it. So that's one extreme of, of um, completely uh, um, ignorant ways of making a record. Then the other one is the music for airports extreme that I explained earlier, where I um, really did think I want to make music for a special place and I want it to have this quality and that quality and so on and so on. So I, I work on the spectrum, really. Uh, you in the back, in the middle? Yeah. Uh, both on remaining light and uh, light on the bush of ghosts. The question is, uh, in Remaining Light and Life in the Bush of Ghosts, there's a lot of African influence. Is that from you, your experience, or from somewhere else? And what is on the horizon in terms of influence? Well, in 1972, I, I bought a record called Afrodisiac, or A-F-R-O, Diziac, um, which was by the Nigerian uh, Fella Ransom Cutie, who was just called Fella Ransom at that time, and the Africa 70. And when I heard that record, I thought, this is so fantastic, why are we bothering? <laughs> it took me quite a long time to recover from that record. In fact, I never really have. Um, 
Fella Ransom's band at that time was a sort of a 20-piece band of whom maybe 15 were rhythm players of some kind or another. Right. Two or three rhythm guitars, um, five percussionists, a drummer, a bass guitar player, um, a whole sort of network of rhythm going on. And then a, the rudest brass section I'd ever heard. <laughs> uh, I wish we had one of those to play. Yeah, that would be nice, pretty, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, but the brass section sounded more industrial than anything I'd ever heard from us. It sounded like those great big Mack trucks, you know, <laughs> like that. <laughs> um, and, and yet the uh, rhythmic structure was so um, intricate and interdependent. It was, it was tribal music, you know. Yeah. Tribal music at the bottom, then this Lagos on top, you know, mm. the big city on top. Right, right. And I thought, what a hybrid, it's fantastic. And of course it was James Brown reinterpreted as well. It's, this was an interesting loop that, you know, mm. Afro-American music goes back to Africa and becomes Fella Ransom. Um, well, the, of course, the, that story had a sequel as well, which is that the first time I ever met the Talking Heads, the first time they came to my house, the first record I ever played them was Fella Ransom. Yeah. <laughs> I said, you must hear this. Mm -hmm. And we all sat down in my front room and listened to this. And in some ways, some of that came out on those Talking Heads records, particularly oh. Remain in Light, I think. Oh, yeah, I think it's clear. Um, so that was, you know, going back to America again. How about for the future? Is there another world music that's... I've liked Arabic music for a long time. Mm -hmm. I like it because the ornamental nature of the singing is very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. This, you know, they say this, this old phrase, the Arab abhors a vacuum. <laughs> <laughs> this, this idea of filling every space with more and more ornament. And it's a little bit like that um, fractals idea, that you, you take something that has a kind of shape and you look at it through a microscope and you find it has the same shape at a smaller, right. at, at a larger magnification. And you look at that and you find it has the same shape again. And I feel that a little bit with Arabic music, that it, it, it has a correspondence for me with nature. In that, um, you know, if you look at a forest from the air, it looks complicated and interesting. If you look at one tree, it's still complicated. If you look at one leaf, it's still complicated. The, the complication doesn't reduce, mm -hmm. um, and the richness doesn't reduce. And this is also, the converse of this is why I find it very difficult to be sympathetic to a lot of the heavily synthesized music that is made now, because at a certain level, it loses richness for me. Uh, because of the, the periodic or the repeating nature of the, of the waveform itself? I suppose that's what it is, yeah. Someone bashing an old out-of-tune guitar. You know, if you hit a guitar 6,000 times in a row, you never get the same sound twice. Sure. No matter how sophisticated uh, synthesizers have become, that still isn't the case. There's something about natural instruments, mm -hmm. about real-time, here-and-now type instruments that is still intriguing. So, I mean, I'm, I'm always interested in the synthesis of them. You know, one of, the, one of the things that was interesting about the Harold Budd collaboration was taking a, a very evolved natural instrument, the grand piano, and then putting it through all those, ele those right. electronics. So being able to bring out dimensions of it. Mm -hmm. 
it's what John Hassel does, I think, as well, with taking um, a trumpet, uh, which is not an instrument that I ever paid any attention to before, really, and suddenly expanding the whole meaning of that instrument, yep. you know, um, with electronics. Right there. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say that uh, you've saved at least one life with your ambient series. <laughs> no, I had cancer eight years ago, and it brought me to a very serious time in my life. Anyway, I just want to comment on that. My question is, is uh, what happened to the very, very hungry, and why it didn't make the album? Okay, do you want to repeat? Yeah, the, uh, first to comment that... Uh, uh, which piece was it that was uh, very, very hungry? Ah, uh, yes. What happened to Very, Very Hungry? Why didn't it make the album? It has now. That's the one that now replaces Quran. So if you... I understand. I haven't seen this myself, but I understand if you buy the record now... Um, I never know about things like this, to tell you the truth. <laughs> um, I said... When, when we came up against the World Council of Islam in all its might, I said, well, let's put Very, Very Hungry on the record in future releases. So as far as I know, that's what's happened. But I, I don't know if, it's, if it really has happened. Maybe nobody bought any more copies after that. <laughs> <laughs> up in the balcony there. question is, what is it particularly about gospel music that makes it the only kind of music that you're listening to? Well, I should modify that a little bit. I do listen to other musics with varying degrees of reluctance. <laughs> um, no, I, I put the radio on and so on. But, yeah, I keep returning to that. And I suppose it's because I like singing. And I like singing gospel. So I put those records on so that I can sing with them. <laughs> it's the best music for singing, you know. That's all it's designed for. It's designed to pull something out from deep inside you. Um, and it does. <laughs> so I put it on and I immediately start singing and I sing until I'm hoarse and then I wait for another week and try again. <laughs> Here in the front row. Yeah. Um, has the fact that you haven't had uh, any kind of musical education been a limitation in your work as a producer of other people or producing your own um, records? Or do you think that that musical knowledge would, in fact, be a limitation in itself? The question is, uh, do you f if I may reduce it, uh, do you feel advantaged or disadvantaged by the absence of a formal musical education in your work for yourself and producing other people's work? Well, what I feel is that I've carved out a little niche that suits my talents and limitations. <laughs> and that's what I suggest everyone should do. You know, it's not a question of saying, this is what I want to be, now I'm going to work towards it. It's more a question of saying, this is what I am, what can I do with it? You know, and what I am is sensitive to sound, um, musically naive, 
um, moved by things and with total confidence in my own perceptions. <laughs> and I think the last one is the most important thing that I've, I've always... I've always felt that if I liked something, it was okay. Um, I, I never felt... Um, God, I wonder if I should make it a little bit different so that other people like it, you know? I, I don't think I'm so different from other people that, that there wouldn't be a convergence of interests. You know, if I like something, I'm sure there are going to be at least you know, a few thousand other people who like it as well. I'm not that different from everyone else. Um, so my, my limitations as a result become sort of strengths because uh, they, rather than becoming the things I can't do, they become the edges of the things I can do. So they're the shape of what I can do, you know. And in fact, of course, those limitations change all the time. I, I keep discovering odd little new skills like these things I sh these slides I showed you have involved skills that I didn't know I had like the skill of making quite accurate objects they're not that accurate actually but they're quite accurate it requires a certain amount of um, to a few microns of accuracy on some of those things <laughs> um, and, and I never knew I could do that kind of thing so I do, I do add to the skills roster a bit. I also never knew I could cook. <laughs> and I can't. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I learned to cook as well. And this was as, as big a thrill to me as... I didn't learn to. I didn't go anywhere to learn. I just found that I was cooking more and more. And cooking in a way that... In the same way as I make my work, I'd think... I think I'll put this one next to this one. What happens there? It needs more sugar, you know. <laughs> um, and suddenly I found that I was doing this thing quite well, and I thought, well, why can't everyone do this? If, if you approach things in this sort of... Um, well, that's what I like about America, actually. They have a can-do attitude. You know, in, in England really the world's most cynical country. You're English, so I can say this to you. Um, do you live here, actually? Uh, well, I'm a student here for one year. Okay, well, you'll, you'll feel it when you go back to England. It's, it is so depressing in some ways. I mean, I can understand that that is also called rigour, this kind of... Oh, yeah, come on, show me. That's, that's also scientific rigour, you know, to not be impressed by everything at uh, first time round, but... I don't know, there's something terribly cynical about the English and terribly weary, as if it's all been done before and we're not really impressed and, oh, do you really want to do it? <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, of course, the, the good side of that attitude is that it filters a lot of things, but it also filters some good things. That's the problem. Well, when you come to America, there are really no filters. <laughs> and that, uh, that, of course, has its good and bad results as well. Um, there's a real attitude here of, hey, it doesn't matter what your background is. 
give it a try and do it, you know. It's still some, some residue of the pioneer spirit. And it's something that Europeans always make fun of in Americans because it seems naive, it seems childish. But Jesus, we really need it over there a little bit, you know. We, we need some of that childlike um, enthusiasm and interest in things and that ability to look at the world and see it in a different way and to say, okay, well, it's always been like that, but it could be like that, you know. And there you have it, a conversation between Brian Eno and yours truly, Carl Stone, in front of a live audience at the Japan America Theater back in uh, August 19th, 1988. It was a bit of an abrupt end, I'm afraid, as the tape ran out in the engineering booth. The conversation was almost two hours long. The program today, it's part of a series of composer-to-composer talks. These are radio discussions with composers in the 80s and 90s that were originally broadcast on the air in Southern California, part of a weekly series that I produced for KPFK called Imaginary Landscape. We're offering them to you on dublab.com, and other programs in this series are talks with Morton Sabotnik, Steve Reich, Terry Riley, Harold Budd, and numerous others. I hope you can tune in. I'd like to give special thanks to Samuel Lamontagne, Mark Frosty McNeil, and all the rest of the gang at DubLab. So this is Carl Stone. I thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this program. In Conversation was produced by DubLab, a nonprofit radio station broadcasting live from Los Angeles since 1999. Sound editing and theme song by Matea Bain. For more programming, visit dublab.com. And thank you for listening.